What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. I love taking long car trips. One of the reasons I love car travel is that I can listen to audiobooks. In fact, a recent trip that was to take two days quickly became a one-day trip when I couldn't stop listening to the audio version of Kenneth Opal's Airborne. Audiobooks provide a great way for readers of all ages and abilities to connect with stories, and they have a lot of great benefits. First and foremost, audiobooks allow readers to access books they may not be able to read independently. I know of struggling readers who read along with audiobooks so they can better decode the text without feeling overwhelmed. Audiobooks also help all types of readers build critical listening skills, and they provide good models for fluent reading. A great narrator with the ability to read in a fluid and expressive way helps children understand the way words sound and how all the words can flow together in a fluently connected pattern. Audiobooks are also a great way to enjoy books together, especially if you feel a little bit less than comfortable about reading aloud. Audiobooks are a great way to enjoy togetherness without you having to do the reading. So all in all, audiobooks are a great way to read. And yes, it's still reading, even if we listen to it. To start your audiobook adventure, I suggest you check out the Odyssey Award for Excellence in Audiobook Production, given by the Young Adult Library Services Association, which highlights some of the best audiobooks for kids out there. To find these and other great audiobooks, I suggest you check out your local library. Today, libraries often have services where you can download great audiobooks for free, or you can even check out and listen to physical formats as well. So just maybe on your next car trip or even for a little reading time at home, you'll join Rachel's World in discovering the joys of a book well-read. How do grown-ups help kids be creative? Today on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel visits with children's book author and illustrator, Leslie Helikoski, who remembers the encouragement she received from her grandmother and parents that allowed her to pursue her interest in art. Leslie's style of illustration and storytelling often uses animals. We'll learn how she uses animals to portray human emotions, providing a safe distance that helps the child explore real and important feelings. Helikoski is the author and sometimes illustrator of 10 picture books, including Wolber, Big Chickens, and Big Pigs. Her books and illustrations have garnered a number of awards. Two new books are in the works and will be released in 2017. Here's Leslie Helikoski and Rachel Wadham. We're visiting with Leslie today. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you, Rachel. We are so excited to visit with you today. Let's start out a little bit and discuss your style. So what label would you put on your particular style as an illustrator? Wow. Um, I don't know because exactly because it's, it's actually something I try to, to find is what my style is and to differentiate yourself in the, in the business when there are so many out there. It's hard to find a way to stand out for me. Um, so I don't know exactly, although I would say it's a little fantastical. I like, I, I'm, 
not into high realism. My, you know, my animals are more cartoonish. Although I'll tell you what, I'm playing with something new that I'm really excited about for this next book um, that it will be coming out next spring called Hoot and Honk. And I'm doing it in pastels, whereas my other books have been in acrylic paint. So I'm having a lot of fun with this pastel. It's a very different style, a different approach to everything. And it's much faster and more energetic to me. So I'm excited about it. That does sound very exciting. So what do you think the pastels are are bringing to the illustrations that maybe the other mediums wouldn't? For some reason, it lets me be more playful with the artwork. I'm, I'm just not as tied down to getting it just right as I am with the paint. With the pastels, I can brush it off. If I don't like the color I've put on, I can brush it right off and rework it, and you cannot tell. So I love that because it does give me license to play, and it's for some. It just goes on quickly. The color goes on so quickly that I can go faster, and I, I'm not a fast. I'm not fast at anything. <laughs> so, so this has been delightful to play with, and um, and the colors are so much fun. It reminds me of when I was little and I had a big box of colors. You know, that was such an exciting thing. I, I do think that's one of the interesting things, particularly about artists and writers, that that they like to kind of press those boundaries of things that they might have done before, and uh, they want to try something new. So, so how do you take that approach? How how do you find those new things and and press those boundaries of of your art in a way that that helps you grow as an artist, but also helps you discover new wonderful, playful mediums. When I talk to other artists, they'll often say, oh, I still take classes. I take classes in this and that. And, and I've, so I've been encouraged by a lot of artists to keep, keep learning new mediums and keep, you know, keep playing and, and painting for myself, not just for hire. Paint something. I have a friend that's a painter. She's always saying, what if you painted for yourself? Um, and so I, I took some classes. The last few years I've taken classes in the winter when it's cold and I need to have a, some kind of creative outlet. And I've, I took some watercolor classes, and I loved those too, but then I took a, an acrylic class, and I just exploded with it. It just was so much fun. So that, that, and it gives me the courage, you know, I have a little back, a little support from a teacher saying, you know, do this, do that, and I can bring my paintings into class and have her critique them for me, which is um, wonderful and helpful. Give me a little courage. (laughs) I think we all need that courage. And the reality is we're all learning. We all need to learn new things, no matter how good we think we are (laughs) at a specific thing. We we all need to learn. So how do you encourage children to do that as they as they experience your books and other things and and want to start creating art on their own? How how do you encourage them to to find that place where they can keep learning and growing? Um, well, in, actually, when I talk to kids at school, that is one thing that I do try to, to focus on is how many times I was told no or that my art wasn't quite right yet, and although that had been my dream initially was to illustrate and not necessarily to write. And then I started being published with my writing way before, years before I published any of my art. So I know what it feels like to, to think that your work isn't good enough and um, that artists are told that all the time, but that it doesn't necessarily mean 
the work isn't good, you may have just not found the right place for it yet or that you're still learning. Um, so I do talk with kids about that, and I think when they hear that someone that they perceive as talented is told the same things that they're thinking, that it helps them to say, well, I'm going to keep going. Yeah, I think we all need that kind of encouragement. Did you have encouragement like that when you were a girl? How how, how did you start writing and drawing as a girl? Well, I've always drawn. I don't know when I started because I just was always drawing. And I just remember my grandmother at one point, I think when I was around four or five, saying, are you going to be an artist when you grow up? And I was like, you can be that. I can. This is a job. <laughs> You know, and, and learning that word artist and thinking, well, that's the coolest thing ever. If that can be a job, that's what I want to do. Um, I also wrote stories when I was young, thinking maybe they'd be books, but I didn't really think about writing picture books until I was more of an adult. When I was in college, I started thinking about that. It's always good for kids to have that kind of encouragement. But one of the things I admire about your work is you bring this wonderful, playful sense of childhood to to what you're offering. So do you go back to those feelings that you had as a child to to bring that beautiful, playful sense of childhood into your writing? Or how do you get into that place where you can you can channel that that essence of childhood? Um, well, I have to say, I had a I had a wonderful childhood, a very happy childhood, and um, I had a lot of brothers and sisters, and we were we had fun, we played, and so I do try to channel some of that into the stories. In fact, I am always telling people that the Big Chickens is a biography. <laughs> it is all it is about things my brothers and sisters and I did. We would walk through the woods, we would cross this cow pasture, and I was afraid of the cows, and we jumped over this big muddy ditch, and I was afraid of falling in the ditch, and all, so I put all that in the story, but I turned everyone into chickens, and we became afraid of everything. Um, I was the one that was afraid in most in real life, but I, I made my brothers and sisters afraid, too, in the story. So that is definitely straight out of childhood memories. Some things are just things I see kids enjoying now. But, you know, kids love animals, and I love to put animals in my stories. So I'm, I pay attention to children around animals, how they interact, even if it's just how they hold a chick, a baby chick, or uh, watch a duck, or play with a puppy. I, those things can inspire me. I love that connection to the natural world. So do you think about how you use these as analogies or as metaphors for things? Do you pick specific animals for specific themes like the chickens and and the fear or or with Wilbur you pick sheep and creativity is there is there some con- more conscious connection between those um i do deliberately choose an animal i won't just um say oh what should i use a skunk or an armadillo here you know i don't do that because for me the story is about that animal and it has to it has to be about that animal so I'm, I am very conscious of, of what animal I'm working with. And sometimes they lend themselves even more towards something like a sheep who follows the flock, um, you know, and bucking that tendency to want to follow the flock. A sheep was the perfect animal for that. Um, 
So sometimes it's a little more conscious than others, and sometimes it's not until after that I, I realize what I've done and I've chosen the, the exact perfect animal. <laughs> and and I do think good stories will have some kind of lesson to learn from it, and you never want to be didactic. But I don't usually start with that. I usually start with something that has entertained me in some kind of way, something I think is funny and or fun. And then when I'm writing the story, it evolves into something that I can apply it to in in real life. Um, for example, when I started with Big Chickens, that was just about being afraid, things I was afraid of, and it kind of played off of the pun of chickens being chicken. But what ended up happening is I had recently read one of Marianne Williamson's books about, um, I think it was Return to Love, and it was about fear and how so many negative things extend from a fearful place. And so I started playing with fear because I was writing about being afraid and applied some of that into the big chicken story. That's a wonderful way to look at it. I think connecting those real human emotions to your animal characters is is a delightful way for for us to explore some of these things that we might not be not be so open to exploring if it was a human character. <laughs> right, right, it's exactly. And we can see that the chickens are overdoing being afraid and it causes them all kinds of trouble. It's way more entertaining to watch the chickens make a flub of things and to, to think of ourselves doing it. And I, I think we learn more about it. We learn more about fear when we, see, when we see the chickens doing it than we would if it was a group of boys and girls like you and your brothers and sisters right. out playing. It makes a difference, especially for kids. I think I think they need that connection to help them to help them see it in a different way, right? And to entertain, to just have fun and laugh at it. You know, makes it a little less stressful. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the time that you took and visit with us here. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was Rachel Wadham with children's book author and illustrator Leslie Helikoski. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Rachel talks to library administrator and author Tim Wadham about how guys, fathers, grandfathers, uncles, and others, can read to kids, too. He shares his experience of reading aloud to his younger sisters, including Rachel, in their growing up years, and also his own daughter. Tim Wadham's latest book is Wordplay for Kids, a source book of poems, rhymes, and read-alouds, published by the American Library Association Editions. Now, Rachel visiting with another literary expert whom she happens to know quite well, her older brother, Tim Wadham. We're in studio with Tim today. Welcome, Tim. Happy to be here. Um, full disclosure, Tim is my brother. So, so if you look on the, on the website and see that we share the same last name, it's because we, we are siblings. So um, one of the reasons that I'm sitting here today is because of Tim. He, he kind of trained me up in the ways of librarianship. He's a librarian as well. And one of the things that I'm excited to reminisce a little bit about for our listeners today is about our reading that we did when we were kids. You read aloud to me and our younger sister when we are when we were little. So tell our audience a little bit about that experience. You know, as I think back on it, I'm I'm not sure why I did it, but I loved to read aloud to you guys. And I think one of the most interesting things about it was the fact that uh, we decided that we would read in different unusual places, whether it was 
on the roof of our garage or whether it was in an airplane traveling to Las Vegas or wherever. We always read in, in unique places, but perhaps it was a way of my passing on what I loved to you, giving you what I had, what I, everything I had, which was the love of literature and wanting you to be familiar with these amazing books. I vividly remember us reading together the Oz books. Yes. L. Frank Baum wrote actually 14 original books about the land of Oz. They came out almost once a a year for quite some time until Baum passed away. And it became such a tradition that that the publishers had to bring in another author to continue because everyone expected a new Oz book under their tree at Christmas time. Uh, I first became aware of the Oz books when um, our mother gave me a set of all 14 books as a Christmas present. I remember that uh, it was belated. I remember being downstairs in our house and my mom calling me up and saying, something came for you, going upstairs and, and opening this box full of these Oz books. And she began reading the Oz books to me. And uh, I loved them. And so that was one thing I wanted to share with my two uh younger sisters was I wanted to to share Oz because I I loved it. And then when when my daughter was little, those were the first books I read to her. You know, that's one of the really interesting things to me about all of this, because I don't remember my mother, our mother, reading to me out Mm. loud. That's that's not a part of my childhood. I do remember you reading aloud to us. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that I think is really kind of important to remember here. Sometimes when we talk about reading aloud, we think of parents Mm -hmm. And children as the kind of reading aloud thing. But there's a a really great role here that siblings can play in the lives of the literacy lives of the family. And the other thing I love about this, connecting it with your daughter, is this fact of dads playing this role. Mm Because I sometimes think we also think that it's just moms that should be reading aloud to kids. But I think it's it's also dads. Um, So along with the Oz books, you particularly read a lot of things with your daughter. So what are some of the other things that you read aloud with? Well, I read many of the things that I actually read to you and our youngest sister. But also newer things. We 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 read all of Lois Lowry. We read uh, Lloyd Alexander. We read Susan Cooper. And actually, that was uh, was one of my favorite experiences. Reading Susan Cooper out loud to uh, the Darkest Rising sequence out loud to my daughter. And I knew that I was on the right track when we were reading a chapter of The Gray King. And in that chapter, Will Stanton, the protagonist, along with uh, a boy named Bran, go down into this mountain, into this cave in a mountain, and meet the lords of the high magic. And it's a very, very quiet and magical chapter. And when we were done, well, I need to back up and say that whenever I was reading to my daughter, she would move around. She didn't stay put. But I knew that she knew what I was reading, and she was listening and paying perfect attention, but she just... She needed to move. She needed to move. But in this particular case, I started reading this chapter, and there was something about the tone and the feeling of Susan Cooper's writing. And she sat down right next to me, put her head on my shoulder, and that hadn't happened before. And when I reached the end of the chapter, she said, this is a good story. That's perfect. You know, that's one of the things I think 
is an important tip for our listeners to remember, is this fact that reading aloud doesn't necessarily have to be a sitting quiet, okay, we're now going to pay attention. Even though she was moving around and doing things, it was still engaging. But sometimes the words, as in the case, as was the case with the Darkest Rising books and The Great King particularly, the words literally weave a spell when they are read out loud. And I know that they, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that they had an impact because we have all our books up in a library you know, on shelves in a, in a library in our home. And when we got them all up, my daughter looked at them and said, this is where I want my grandchildren to come. She wants them to be where all the books are. I just think it's so simple and easy. And, and men should be involved. This is one way guys can be involved in the lives of their children or in the lives of siblings if you're a younger guy. Kids need to be read to. Uh, it seems so simple, but it is the most important thing you can do for your kids. Well, I guess you have to feed them. You know, <laughs> Feeding is pretty important. Feeding them, clothing them, and, and then housing reading, them, and then yeah, reading to them. And then reading to them. <laughs> it, I saw it make a difference with you and our younger sister. I mm-hmm. saw it make a difference with my daughter. I know that it works, that it is crucial. I, I love that because it really just shows how passionate you feel about this. And, and I agree more. All our listeners will know that this is something that I'm very passionate about, too, partially because of what you did for me when I was a girl, that reading to me. So I really find that, you know, I've become who I am and overcome the disabilities that I've had and all of these things from that from that one simple act of, you know, sitting down and reading for 15, 20 minutes um, in the evening. And I have a very vivid memory of one evening. Um, you were out You were out on a date or you were out doing something because there's quite a difference in our ages. There's 10 years difference yeah. in our ages. So you were – when this was happening, you were much older. So you were mm-hmm. more doing more adult things. Mm-hmm. And uh, – we hadn't got to read that day yet, and um, my sister and I, we just really, really wanted to hear what was happening next, and you'd promised us, you know, that you would, we would get to it, we would get to it, and my mom said, no, but it's bedtime, you guys need to go to bed, you know, Tim can read to you tomorrow, it's fine, and we were, we were so disappointed that after um, mom put us to bed, we actually snuck out of our bed and got the book and went and laid down in your bed together with the book between us. To, and went to sleep in your bed, so when you got home, you'd have to read to us before you could get back into bed. <laughs> well, doesn't, but doesn't that show the power of the story? You know, that you want to know what happens next. You want to be a part of it. It's part of your daily ritual. Yeah. And the other part that it shows to me is just how much it connected us with you. Because mm-hmm. I think maybe by that time, we could have read it ourselves. I I, I don't think it was, it, at that period of time, it was that we were incapable of reading it. And I think that's really the point here is that particularly as men, we can connect with our children, we can connect with our siblings through reading. And that's actually a really good way for guys to to connect. And finding that and sharing it is great. As we kind of close up today, Tim, maybe tell our listeners what you think makes a good read aloud. I, I don't believe that all books are really equally read aloudable. <laughs> I'm going to make That's that true. word up. So how do you pick a story that you think is a really great read aloud? Typically, they're stories that are well-written, full of beautiful language, just the stories that you resonate to or respond to. And 
and also lots of fun voices to do. So yes, that was one of the things I do remember mm-hmm. <laughs> is that you you always love to love to do our uh, the Oz voices, and you had a you had a voice for each character. But that's yeah. not necessary, right? You no. don't have to do that. No, you can you can just read and enjoy the story together, mm-hmm. whatever whatever that story is. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Tim. It's been fun reminiscing, and I hope our listeners have some great tips now that uh, they can engage with their lives, in particular our men listeners out there. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for them to know this is an important part of, of how they need to, to interact with their children and siblings and, and all of their families and their lives. So thanks so much. Thank you. Librarian and author Tim Wadham talking with Rachel Wadham about how guys can read to kids too and what a great impact they can have. Let's wrap up today's show with an old classic by Ernest Thayer called Casey at the Bat, read by Sean O'Neill, producer at BYU Radio. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood 4-2 to two with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could get but a whack at that. They'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a pudding, and the latter was a fake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And then when dust had lifted and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley and it rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt, t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, Defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone in the stand. And it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult, and he bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew. But Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud! cried the maddened thousands, and Echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. 
He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. That was Casey at the Bat, read by Sean O'Neill, producer at BYU Radio. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.